What are you waiting for? That's a common expression in our society, I guess. We say that when we want someone to hurry up. <laughs> what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What's the delay? Uh, we have an expression in the text of Scripture we're going to look at this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. Well, 9, the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10. And uh, it says that Christ will appear a second time for those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are eagerly waiting, anticipating. This reminded me of the famous poem, "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. All the children were snug in their beds with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. That's what eagerly waiting is about. That can't sleep. It's the kind of waiting that makes you say, I can't wait. And if you're a child, it gets you bouncing. That sort of waiting. What are you eagerly waiting for? Let me just read this text for us. It starts in Hebrews 9. I'm going to start with verse 25. Now, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law was but a shadow, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin. We've been noticing repeatedly in the book of Hebrews the once, the once 
the once sacrifice that replaces all the daily, 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 time after time, year after year, sin, sacrifices that provided some sort of covering but didn't really solve the problem. And then the sacrifice of Christ, we read, he has been offered once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in this text, we have a sentence that says he has appeared now at the end of the ages once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then we have the statement, and he will appear a second time. He has appeared now at the end of the ages. We are living in the end of history. The end of history began when Christ appeared. Because Christ is the conclusion of history. He is the, the character of the story of history, the central figure. And when he appears, he is doing what is necessary to wrap everything up in himself. That's, you could read about that in Ephesians and Colossians. All things come together in him. You could read about it in chapter 1 of Hebrews. He is the conclusion of all things. Not just some things, everything. In him, God is reconciling all things to himself. God is putting everything back in its proper relation to himself in Christ. Christ is our peace. He's not just our peacemaker. He is our peace. In him, we are joined again into one new family of God. And we are born again to exhibit the nature of God into the world. He has appeared at the end of the age, once for all to put away sin, to render sin null and void by the sacrifice of himself. His righteous life put to death in him, you and I are put to death. According to Romans chapter 6, in him, we died with him, we are raised with him. We are even now, according to Ephesians, seated at the right hand of God in Christ. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. I hope you have a problem with that statement. You should have a problem with that statement. Though I am asserting it to be absolutely true, sin has been dealt with once and for all. It has been, really, it has been. The writer goes on to say, just as you get to die only once, we're in the once, the once. Death is once. And then judgment. 
It is appointed for men, for people, for human beings, for humanity to die once and then following dying be judged. Be judged by God. It is a fearful thing to be judged by God because God is actually righteous. He is not pretending like we are. He is actually righteous. And so it's appointed for us to die once. So also, this is, by the way, the reason for pointing that out, that we die once and then we're judged, is not the reason for which we normally quote this verse, which is the way I just preached it a little bit just now. You only get one shot at this, and you're going to die, and then you're going to be judged. Look out. That's normally how we would use this verse. And that's really completely taken out of its context, though that is not an incorrect application of it. The, what it says was, just as you die once, so Christ died once. The emphasis is on, is on the once. You die once, and then you're judged He died once to bear the sins of many. Because in his death, he is not bearing any of his own sin. His life is available to atone for yours and mine because he has no sin of his own. And so he carries ours into death. You could ask, well, where did he take them, our sins? Because that word bear, I mean, literally could be translated carries away. He was offered once to carry away the sins of many. Where did he take them? We already know this from the book of Hebrews because where Christ presents himself crucified is before the throne of God, before the actual mercy seat of the heavenly temple where he brings his own life a sacrifice for sins. That's where he took them. You see, God has already seen your sins judged in the death of Christ. Christ himself has presented himself crucified for sin before God Almighty. So your sins have been put away, even the ones you haven't done yet. Because, you know, when this first happened, you weren't even thought of yet. And yet your sins were seen judged by God Almighty in the death of Christ. In his presentation of himself as a sacrifice for sins, he put away sin. So he appeared once for that. Now, it seems odd to say he will appear a second time after you said he appeared once and for all. But he appeared once and for all for that 
And he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because it's already dealt with. He says he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And now I think I could ask you, are you saved? We might ask anyone that, are you saved? What do we mean? What would your answer be? Well, yes, I'm saved. I'm saved because my sin has been put away by the death of Christ, saving me. I will not be judged for my sin because the judgment for my sin has been laid on him. So I am saved. This says, wait a second. He's coming a second time to save. Here's the thing about saving in the Bible. It's all over the map. It's everywhere you look, saving, the saving work of God. It began when? It began when the triune God in eternal counsel determined the plan of redemption before creation. He determined this before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, Ephesians 1, if you want to look it up. It occurred, my salvation occurred then. My salvation occurred on the cross and in the resurrection, in those historical events in the life of the man, the human being, Jesus, when he died and gave his life a sacrifice for my sins, I was saved. When he rose again, I was saved. That's all in the past. Oh, there was another time when I was saved, when I trusted in this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I was saved in 1965, that was a long time ago. In 1965, when I trusted in this reality, when I said, yes, I'll, I will receive that. Simple-hearted, childish faith. I was saved then. Oh, and here's something the Bible says. We are being saved right now, right this minute, as we grow in the grace of God, in the acknowledgement of the operation of his grace in our lives. Um, my life is being redeemed from the practice of sin. I should be growing in my personal righteousness as a consequence of this salvation. This is not a salvation that I accomplish. It is the work of the Spirit of God in me, like it says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Or like it says in Philippians chapter 2, I believe, verse 13, let us work out your, work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will, that is to have the desire, and to do what he wants. 
Again, that's not, I mean, you're participating, you're doing something, but it's the work of him in you that does the thing. This is the natural, this is design of human nature from the very beginning, that we would draw on the eternal resource of God's provision, and in doing so, present the character of God into creation. So, we are being saved, and as we've just read, we will be saved. We are, we, when he appears a second time, he will save those who eagerly wait for him. Now, he, when he appears the second time, it's not to deal with sin. He's already dealt with it once and for all. Sin is finished in the cross. But he will appear to save those who eagerly wait for him. You might say, well, when there's a saving, there's a saving from something, some disaster. There's a salvation that is a rescue, uh, you know, grabbing someone off the tracks right before the train comes by. Saving. What is it we're saved from? Well, I think it's the judgment he just mentioned. It's appointed to man to die once and then be judged. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be judged. It just means we won't be condemned. We'll be saved from the just punishment of our sins in Christ. And so when he appears, what's going to happen is a resurrection. A completion of our salvation. And this is mentioned all over the New Testament. That we are waiting for the job to be finished. In this, this expression, eagerly waiting, I've put several references of this exact word that are in the New Testament. Uh, and all except the very first one are about us anticipating the second coming. We eagerly wait. And then it describes it in various ways. The second coming. Things that will happen at the second coming. That first reference is in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's God that's eagerly waiting. And it's kind of an interesting spot because it says that God was eagerly waiting for the construction of the ark. It describes God in the times of Noah, eagerly waiting while they built the ark. It's like, come on now, hurry it up. What this is a demonstration of there in 1 Peter is God's anticipation of judgment with salvation. It's exactly what we have here in Hebrews. We have the mention of judgment with salvation. Christ offered once to carry away the sins of many so that when he appears the second time, we will experience our full salvation. If you looked at Romans chapter 8, you will see that creation itself eagerly waits 
for the revealing of the sons of God, the redeemed people at the time when Christ returns. The creation can't wait for our redemption to be completed in resurrection so that we become the stewards of that creation that we were created to be. Those who bring the glory of God into the created world. So we eagerly wait for the healing that we will experience when Christ comes. And so does everything else. Here's the thing. Why is this in the book of Hebrews? <laughs> Why is this in the middle of this text that's all about how the priesthood of Christ is superior to the priesthood under the Mosaic law? That the sacrifice of Christ actually deals with the problem that the sacrifice of the sacrifices of the old covenant temple were only like little replicas of. And the temple itself, only a replica, only a replica, a little model of the real temple where Christ presents himself. Why talk about this Christ appearing to save those who eagerly wait for him here? The reason is because in the Hebrew church that this letter addresses, people were considering abandoning Christ. Which is the opposite of eager anticipation of his coming. And so he's, it's a bit of a warning to them. The Christ comes to save those who are eagerly waiting. Those who are in Christ saying, please hurry. Those who regard the the second coming of Christ as the best possible thing that could happen this afternoon. Those who are not distracted by other silly hopes that will disappoint. But those who know Christ and long for the return of Christ. Here's the thing, those who know Christ long for the return of Christ. It's just that simple. Jesus, my Savior, if only, if only he would show up. Now, here's a problem with the way people like me often talk about this. I mean, preachers often talk about the second coming of Christ as though it's a threat. As though, in fact, I read a sermon, I guess it was, this week uh, that I found by Googling eager anticipation of the second coming. And what it said was, will he find you doing what he told you to do when he arrives? As though it were not true that he has put away your sin once and for all. 
Because he is the one who has put away your sin once and for all, there is nothing but goodness in his arrival for you. Now, there are those for whom that will be a great period of judgment. But if we are in Christ, we eagerly anticipate his coming. He has absorbed. He's not going to find you doing something he doesn't like and express great disappointment in you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have a hard time believing that, but it's true. We condemn ourselves all the time because I keep sinning even though my sin has been put away. We live in a period of confusion, I would say. But returning to Mosaic Judaism is a rejection of Christ. It's returning to a sacrificial system that doesn't accomplish what he has accomplished. It is no longer joyfully anticipating his arrival. It's struggling to earn something from God. So in chapter 10 we read, the law has but a shadow of these things, not the true form. So the law and its sacrifices can never perfect the worshipers. If they could, we would have stopped doing them because the job would be complete. That's the argument of this text. If those sacrifices could have perfected the worshipers, then those sacrifices would not continue because the worshipers would be cleansed and would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. We, we live in this condition. We have been cleansed. Christ is not sacrificing himself again once for all. Now, I would say this is a bit confusing because he says they would no longer have any consciousness of sins. They'd have a clean conscience. Well, this is what he's been talking about all along, right? He's been saying that the work of Christ actually cleanses our conscience. Well, here's the thing. It actually removes your guilt. <laughs> That's really hard to take. But here's the thing. We live in this period in which these things have been done and are yet to play out at the same time. They've been done and done once and for all in Christ. And we look forward to their completion. This period we sometimes call already and not yet. It's put in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And so already we live in the end times. But we might study the end times as something yet in the future. Well, right. Because the end times are the time of Christ, the time of Messiah, the time in which God wraps everything up in himself that has begun and we're looking forward to its completion. Christ has appeared, the sacrifice for sin that has been done, and he will appear a second time for salvation. So he's taken care of the judgment of our sins, and he will show up to prevent the judgment of our sins. He put away sin. He removed, nullified, set aside sin. He carried our sin away through his death. And he will carry us away from the very presence of sin in the future. He will perfect us. There's a salvation from the coming judgment for us, a resurrection for us, in which we will experience the resurrection of our bodies the same way he experienced the resurrection of his. And so we will be whole human beings in flesh and blood, but healed. Fully human in a way we aren't up to now. He will, as we read, he will perfect us. That's a great word. He says, look, if the sacrifices of the old law, they can't perfect anyone. And the implication is the fact sacrifice of Christ does perfect us. That word perfect means to complete, to bring to fulfillment, to realize the purpose of a thing. Teleos, it's the same word Jesus used, the verb form of it on the cross, tetelestai. It is finished. Well, it is finished, and we are to be perfected. Finished. He has cleansed our consciousness, our consciences. He's actually completely removed our guilt so that Romans, Paul writes, and he's not exaggerating or, or uh, it's not hyperbole. He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. but I'm still struggling with sin. So I'm led by the law to return to Christ, to experience again the forgiveness I have in Christ over and over. This happens, could happen any day, any minute, any time. When I realize I'm not really walking in the grace of God, but according to my own wits, and I realize and confess the whole thing goes around and around. I'm in the battle between the spirit and the flesh every day, every day, between what God desires for me as we, read, as we sang and what I desire on my own. One day when he comes, that battle will be over. 
And I will experience what he describes here. I will no longer have any consciousness of sin. My clean conscience will be clean indeed. And so we have in Christ, he has appeared, he will appear. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then it goes on to say this, whoever has this hope, this eager anticipation, purifies himself even now. Even now, I try to improve my vision, my understanding, my correct perception of Christ. And this has healing power in my life. To know Him changes you. And so you begin to reflect who He is in who you are. And one day when He appears, this will be completely fulfilled. O oh Lord, come quickly. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us in Christ. What amazing grace, Lord. Lord, we do pray, help us to see these things more and more clearly. Help us to know your love more and more fully. Help us to love one another with the love of Christ and to share this good news in love with the world around us. Lord, we pray for you to come quickly. And while we wait, Lord, we pray for this spirit-guided transformation of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.